Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Liverpool. I'm Carlos from Liverpool. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> now, as you probably know, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival is on at the moment, at uh, focused around Acme at Federation Square, running through until the 11th of April. Now, what would a film festival be without a road movie? Joining us in the studio to uh, talk to us about her film, He Hated Pigeons, we have director Ingrid Veniger. Welcome to Triple R. Hello. Uh, and we also have a muso with us as well, Frankie Topaz from Total Giovanni, who's doing a live score for the film. And good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So, but Ingrid, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about the film. It is a road movie, but it's kind of quite a, a wistful, gentle road movie is the impression I get, having not had a chance to see it yet. Yes, well, it's a film that travels from the north to the south of Chile. We start in the Atacama Desert and we end up in Patagonia. And it's a story of a young man who made a promise to his lover to go to the edge of the earth. And actually, the word Chile translates in English to mean the land where the earth ends. So they make this promise, and the lover unfortunately dies. And so our beautiful, gorgeous man takes the trip alone. Why did you want to have the film uh, performed with a live score, at, uh, at a different live score, at each screening around the world? Yeah, I think because the film deals with loss and grief and impermanence, I really wanted the audience to be part of something that had its own intrinsic uncertainty and impermanence at every single screening. So I've um, showed the film 12 times now, and each time a local artist improvises the soundtrack. So I never know what's going to happen. The only note the musician gets from me is that there should be no music in the first six minutes. After that, they have total creative control. So no pressure. <laughs> I know. It's, it's look. It's an amazing uh, thing to have been invited to participate in, and it's a really beautiful idea. I think what Ingrid's trying doing with that idea of impermanence, and I think it really resonates with me, having had a background in theatre performance and stuff. And I think the thing that marks can mark theatre uh, in life performance apart is that spontaneity of that collection of that particular collection of people in a room together is a unique experience, and so bringing that into a cinema experience, which is often more, you know, it comes straight out as a, the same thing every time. And, and letting those two things collide is really beautiful, where you're seeing a film that is, you know, is uh, been created very meticulously by Ingrid, but each time it's going to have a different sort of emotional accentuation being provided by someone else, and that's always going to be slightly different depending on... Yeah, that person and the people yeah. in the room as well. Yeah, and I think that as independent filmmakers now, we're sort of expected to make our films available and accessible all the time. And I really like the sort of one-time only impermanence, and especially at a film festival where this presentation will never be repeated. You're mm. doing it one time. Mm. So it's only for the people that show up, and if you don't show up, you miss it. And there's no other way to see it, not online, not on DVD, not on television, ever. So it's a... Uh, a DIY scoring approach to the film, which is very appropriate given, I think, you're, I think one of your nicknames is what the the, uh, the queen of Canadian DIY filmmaking. Yeah, do it yourself. I mean, I think it's really good to be able to, especially with the technology we have available now, if you have the fire and the passion to make something, just get out and do it and nothing can stop you. How did the film itself come about? Uh, inspired by a previous visit to Chile, I believe. Yes, I was at a women's film festival, Femme Cine, in 2005. 
2014, and I was having a retrospective. And uh, the translator at my screening was Pedro Fontaine, who's the lead in the film. Essentially, he told me he was an actor. I'd never seen him act in anything, but somehow I was curious about him, and I fell in love with the landscape of Chile, and I was really interested in exploring a story about the person left behind after they've lost someone. So I basically Skyped with him and said, look, I've never seen you act in anything, but I'd like to write a lead role for you. I don't speak Spanish, so... I don't know the country, I've never seen you act, and I don't speak Spanish. We're going to shoot in a year. Here we go. And we shot the following year. We traveled 6,000 kilometers together. It's a fascinating exercise in trust. It's absolutely a leap of faith. He had no idea what he was getting into. There was no script or idea for a movie when he committed to come aboard. And so he had to take a big leap, and I took a big leap. And now every time the film screens, the musicians take a big leap. So it's an act of faith and a leap of trust all the way along. Now, Frankie, had you had a chance to watch the film multiple times in preparation for playing a score, or are you seeing it cold? No, I did get a chance to, to see it, but I didn't want to watch it too much. I didn't want to destroy that sort of spontaneous energy, so I, sort of the approach I took, which may have been different with other people, but um, was to watch it in, in small chunks and, and sort of write music to each uh, allow something to come out spontaneously to what I was seeing in that moment. So I wanted to really capture my initial emotional reaction to each sort of chunk of the each emotional bone of the film, and sort of recorded that, and then came back to those parts to maybe uh, arrange them in my own mind a bit more. So yeah, really tried to keep it fresh in terms of what was coming out in response to seeing it for the first time, because I felt like that would be what the audience is seeing and. Yeah, didn't want to didn't want to overdo it. So hopefully, you know, that allows for some plenty of, um, yeah, in the moment things to happen on Friday as well. This is really cool for me because we've just met right now, <laughs> and so I'm hearing about your process a little bit in the moment, and it's it's actually really cool. Now, in terms of. Uh I guess, presenting this uh, within the, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. I wanted to talk about a queer aesthetic um, because some queer films, kind of like the, the focus, it, it's overt. It's, this is, there's a lot of uh, gratuitous nudity, uh, some boy-on-boy some boy or girl-on-girl girl action, and the plot might focus around a particular issue about queer life, whether it's coming out, queer bashing more recently, same-sex marriage, some of these kind of issues. What's your aesthetic? What are you bringing to, in terms of a queer sensibility? to the film and to the to the the story that it tells well i think the the country um itself is quite quite a closeted country and uh it's really important i think to tell these stories especially when they're situated in latin american countries like chile to basically say it's a human story and it's a story about love and it's a profound love and the gender sort of aspect of it should not be an issue for people, and it really is. So I feel like we need more of these stories to sort of foster community and dialogue and communication and connection, especially in countries where there's a lot of homophobia. So that that notion of addressing perhaps expectations around a macho culture that uh, certainly it, perhaps that's one of the stereotypes I know that I probably have around Latin American culture, for example, given the, the, the connections to the European culture that it comes from, that sense of machismo, undermining that or addressing that through cinema and particularly perhaps through uh, the power of grief, allowing a man to express emotion, perform emotion on camera, on screen as a way of 
undermining that macho pose is something that intrigues me. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in the country itself, it has a lot of... Um, it has a lot of history in its soil, but also the tensions of, you know, be, being hiding and coming out and the inner and outer reality and the northern desert dryness that in some areas has, has never seen a drop of rain and sort of the wet, lush Patagonian ice fields and the sort of green, exotic, fertile ground in between and the dark and the light. And all of these tensions, I think, around identity are very much reflected in the film where the landscape is a very big character. So we have our beautiful man in this red pickup truck that represents the heart traveling from the north to the south and really his dialogue is with his lover but also with the beautiful landscape of Chile so if you want a trip to Chile come out and see this film <laughs> it sounds like you've got a lot to work with in terms of tone and and, and emotion uh, as well as movement mm. and space mm. yeah it's really beautiful and I, I think the, the main thing I wanted when I was sort of creating for it was not to crowd it at all because it's really beautiful like the sense of space and the sense of grief you know um yeah finding ways to augment that without um crowding that space because it really is there's so much there um visually uh and that's been really beautiful and it's a delicate balance which i hope i'm able to (laughs) to strike you have a lot of power (laughs) you have a lot of power Um, yeah it's interesting to see how how it comes out but yeah there's so much to work from visually i think it's very very inspiring way to work and in terms of uh, the music that you're going to be creating for people who don't know Total Giovanni's tone or style, what can they expect? Oh, it's quite different to that, I think. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be blazing pop songs into this film. So, uh, <laughs> no, look, this is, yeah, it's really much more sparse and, um, yeah, experimental than I think other music stuff I've done up to this point, um, which I think has been really great for me as well, to have a different, uh, a different um, route into creating. You know, it, it's... Uh, very much um, finding a symbiosis with the visuals, which is a really nice way to work. It sounds like it's going to be a fascinating screening, both kind of for the film and obviously for this additional layer of music being created live. Yeah, I can't wait. I have to say I've been really, really looking forward to the screening here in Melbourne. I've had a flutist play. I've had a rock band, a punk band, electronic musicians, a folklore band, a cellist, an accordionist, a violinist, a drummer, a whole alt-rock trio. So I cannot wait to see what goes down here. The film is He Hated Pigeons and it's screening this Friday, the 8th of April at 6.30pm at ACME at Federation Square as part of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. If you'd like to know more and if you'd like to book tickets, jump online, mqff.com.au. Ingrid and Frankie, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks very much. Now... I wanted to take you back to 1938 when a war is raging in Europe. Um, who do you think was, a, uh, the, I guess, the, the first community perhaps in Australia or one of the first communities in Australia to uh, protest out the front of the German embassy against Nazi persecution of European Jews? Um, it was an Aboriginal activist. And that event has inspired a work called Bright World, which is happening at TheatreWorks from next week, running from the 13th to the 30th of April. And joining us in the studio to talk about Bright World, we have uh, playwrights Andrea James and Elise Hurst. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good to be here. Good to have you both here. Now, um, Andrea, let's start with you. Where did this collaboration uh, spring from? 
Yeah, well, actually, Elise um, came to Arthur Productions with the idea. She'd heard about William Cooper through her father. So, so in actual fact, I was invited to the project. Um, I'm based in Sydney now and Elise is in Melbourne. Um, so they contacted me. They knew that I was a Yorta Yorta playwright. And they said, oh, we, we're working on this project. Um, do you know of William Cooper? And I said, well, actually, I do. He's my great-great-uncle. Um, so, so that was just a really great finding and, and revelation, and it just sparked from there, really. And, Elise, how did you first discover the story? Uh, well, William Cooper's become, I guess, a bit of a hero to the Melbourne Jewish community. Um, so he's quite well-known um, and... Uh, at Jewish schools, well, not not in my not in my day, but um, they now learn about William Cooper. There's an exhibition about him, or there's a section at the Jewish Holocaust Centre about him and um, how he and the Aborigines Advancement League stood up for Jewish people at the time of Kristallnacht uh, in November 1938. So. So, yeah, it was actually my parents who know quite a bit about it. Uh, I was kind of searching for an idea, something new to write about, and my grandparents, my dad's parents, had escaped from Austria. And I thought, oh, well, this could be a really interesting kind of parallel story about how they ended up here in Australia and the only people who stood up for them um, were Aboriginal people and William Cooper in particular. It's a, such a rich and fascinating kind of uh, meeting of, of cultures and meeting of minds which I guess in, in contemporary Australia where we're more focused on the divisions uh, which seem to be widening the, uh, to, to have a story which focuses on, on things that unite us is, is such a delight. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really lovely, and it's it's. I guess it just seems like such a um, unexpected uh, un- unity of people from half a world away to come together, and it seems so surprising. I think when people hear about it, literally their their jaws drop because they go, "What? You know, these Aboriginal people, no right voting rights. You know." Um, if they protested, there were repercussions often on the missions, you know. Um, the fact that there was so much for them to struggle with here in their own country and yet they were able to to look out of themselves and to another world away, you know, is just such an extraordinary, beautiful story. So with that as the, the kernel for the story that uh, Bright World is telling, where do you go from, from there? Do you think, oh, shall we just do a literal kind of version of this story? I'm suspecting the answer is no. <laughs> well, I suppose uh, that's become part of the play, is how we're going to tell this play. And what we found really interesting was this kind of growing relationship between Andrea and I and trying to figure that out and figure how we're going to share this story, how, you know, yeah, we're going to... Um, divide the responsibility when and we're so different we we weren't friends when you know we before this so coming together from two completely different backgrounds and that was actually really we realized was a really interesting part of the story how two people from completely different communities backgrounds um livelihoods can tell a story in kind of harmony and and it's not always hasn't always been easy and that's yeah has become the backbone of of the play itself yeah it was a surprising revelation because I guess we both started from our different family perspectives you know wanting to tell our family history as well but all of the while we're 
sussing each other out, you know. (laughs) And I think playwrights are naturally competitive. The theatre industry is competitive, so there's a kind of a competition for ground, for (laughs) page space, you know. So we do end up coming to some incredibly awkward but important conversations that kind of happened in the rehearsal room as well. So as we started to see the kernel of that, we decided, oh, that's something to explore more and it has become sort of the spine of the play. But I think the beautiful thing about that is that for all of us, we wanted to go, look, this isn't something that just happened in 1938. People from different races and religions and classes are still trying to live together and sort of work each other out. So that's why I think this part of the story has become really important. Yeah. The, the metatheatrical nature then of presenting a play which is about the writing and the making of the play but then also with so many other levels to it as well, it, it feels like a, a, a very, very Melbourne independent theatre production in that regard, that it's aware of itself as an independent theatre production. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, yeah, there are plenty of limitations when <laughs> you're making a production, uh, you know, independently. But uh, we we felt like we couldn't just tell this, you know, this historical narrative in a, you know, in a traditional, in a traditional way. And what was really important was the legacy we felt of, you know, what has come before us and the actions of our ancestors. So... So we wanted to really ref- be able to reflect that in kind of contemporary in a contemporary way, and it's become more than just a sort of an in joke as well. I mean, because you know, really, what we're grappling with, you know, is is implicit within the content of the historical sort of stories as well. So, so yeah, it makes for a really interesting kind of metaphor for the whole world view story as well. If you've just tuned in, we're uh, chatting about the work Bright World, which is uh, presented by Theatre Works and Arthur, an independent theatre company, and is happening uh, from the 13th to the 30th of April at Theatre Works in Ackland Street, St Kilda. And uh, we have playwrights uh, Elise Hurst and Andrea James in the studio. Now, you've been uh, in the rehearsal room watching the show being developed over the last couple of weeks. Tell us about that kind of creative process as playwrights, because I know some directors don't want playwrights in the room. Others are happy to have them there sitting quietly up the back but not getting involved. Talk to us about your relationship with the the work now that it's at, at this, I guess, the pointy end of the production. Well, I suppose we haven't had a choice because we're both in the play. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, it's been a bit different to the traditional experience of being the writer in the room because we're also the performers in the room. Uh, so, it's, yeah, it, it's been uh, challenging because we haven't been able to really sit back in that way that we usually would and, and reflect on our work. It's very active. And there are a lot of kind of script edits on the, on the fly, um, Absolutely. When you're in there and you're going, oh, God, this really does need a good edit, you know, <laughs> while you're actually saying the lines Lined. and watching the actors sort of struggle, oh, God, I've really got to rewrite that line, and yeah. you know, but eventually we're going to have to sort of let that go. You yeah, know. And, but and it's just fantastic. focus on the, on the, on the show. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but it's great to work with an ensemble who are really, you know, understand the nature of new work, that we're just changing things literally on the fly, and I'm sure that will happen right up till, you know, opening night. But, yeah, so it's pretty exciting and 
challenging all at the same time. And tell us about who else is in the cast. Uh, we've got um, uh, Shari Sebens, Guy Simon and Kevin Keenan and Malloy. Malloy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's five of us on stage. Uh, plus a director. So I, I almost feel sorry for a director who is directing her playwrights um, as the playwrights are rewriting her play that she is directing. It's, it's oh, well, she's, she's uh, been involved in quite a few of the script edits herself, so yes. <laughs> don't feel too bad for her. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's one of the things that it just reminds me of how alive theatre is. Mm-hmm. Um, often, I think, when you go and see a finished work, particularly if it's a, uh, a local production of a, something that was written years ago in the UK or something, um, you can you look at the end result, but you don't think about how it's made. So I'm sure that audiences, when they get along to theatre works, are going to be very, very conscious not only of the work they're seeing, but all the the, the layers that have that underlie it and that have gone into the making of it as well. Mm. It's going to be a, a very live theatrical experience, I think. Yes, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the work is called Bright World. Uh, as I said, it's on at Theatre Works in Ackland Street, St Kilda, from the 13th to the 30th of April. Uh, if you'd like to book, uh, jump online, www.theatreworks.org.au or you can call 95343388 to book tickets uh, the, uh, the traditional way. I was going to say old-fashioned, but that might sound slightly cruel. Uh, Andrea and Elise, thanks so much for joining us here in the studio and really Thank looking you. forward to seeing Bright World. Yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> now, my next guest has just settled into the studio. Peter Fitzpatrick is honorary professor at Monash University where he uh, taught in the literature and drama departments. He's a writer uh, of both novels and for the stage. Um, and he has uh, he's joining us to talk about a new musical, which is opening soon. Um, and f- uh, I love a phrase he used to describe it. Getting a new music theatre production to the stage is like reversing a battleship into a car park. Um, that's uh, an interesting turn of phrase there, Peter. And uh, is it really? Well, of course, there's a certain amount of hyperbole in that because I've never actually done that. But um, I can imagine what it might be like. Uh, so the sense that you need many hands and you need uh, an eye in all directions and that it's uh, a kind of... Well, it, hopefully it's a triumph, but it's also a species of help when you're working through it. Now, you've, uh, you are familiar with the challenges of getting uh, new Australian musicals to the stage, having previously uh, uh, written Flower Children, the Mamas and Papas story, which uh, had a theatre works season uh, in 2011 and then later um, uh, a fully-fledged season uh, with pr- uh, kind of professional backers at the Comedy Theatre in yes. 2013. So... Having had that experience, why on earth have you written a new, a new musical and gone through all that pain again? Exactly. I think I'm a very slow learner, Richard. I, with Flower Children, of course, I, I was lucky because it was the Mamas and Papas story and so I'm, I had a, a dead collaborator, John Phillips, Papa John of the Mamas and Papas, uh, whose works were very familiar to a lot of people, especially people of my own baby boomer. Uh, ilk. Um, with uh, this show, the risk is greater still because it is a totally new Australian musical. Uh, it's got a fantastic um, uh, score by uh, my musical collaborator, Anthony Costanzo, just a brilliant uh, songwriter. Um, but it is totally new and it's, it's not about any familiar subject. It's, about, it's set in modern Australia. Uh, it's about contemporary relationships. And so it... Um, it's just sitting out there on a limb, basically, but it's an exciting place to sit. It absolutely is. I'm sure the view is excellent. <laughs> now, tell us about the development process. Did um, 
Did Anthony get in touch with you uh, and say, I'm composing and songwriting, I need a writer? Did you get in touch with him? How did it begin? Well, Anthony and I have go back a fair way, although I'm twice his age. Um, and he was a, briefly a student of mine, although he, in those days he wasn't uh, particularly good at turning up to class. But we did some musicals together at, uh, at Monash, which was great. Um, and I subsequently wrote uh, with him. We collaborated on a show called Life's a Circus, which had a very successful season at Theatre Works in 2009. Um, and we've talked a lot about other projects in the intervening years. And in 2013, in fact, in the last couple of weeks that Flower Children was running... Uh, I was spending nine to five at the VCA in workshops, running workshops with Anthony, which were dedicated to the notion of getting up a new show. And in our case, that meant that we came in with a couple of ideas, a couple of songs, um, and I suppose it all would have fitted on about three pages. Um, And we had a terrific group of eight students who... Had a, took, were prepared to take risks with us and it was the most intensive and crazy period, I think, of actual creative brainstorming that uh, I've ever experienced. So I was very glad it was over uh, because I was able to get a bit of sleep, but uh, it was a fantastic way to launch the show. And we finished that, that workshop series with a, a basic basis, the basis of a first act uh, and, and, and Anthony had about eight songs in the bank. But then the show has had a number of reworkings over the intervening years and three or four outstanding songs have gone. A couple of really funny scenes that I wrote have gone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough process, but um, it has been a process of streamlining, refinement, clarifying, all of that sort of thing. Um, and in the last six months, we've been very fortunate to have on board our director for the Chapel of Chapel season, uh, the brilliant Tyron Park, who is based in Sydney but has... Um, has a love for our show and and he's had a very uh, significant role in, in reshaping the material too toward the production that opens on Saturday week. And the production is called Crossroads. Yeah. Now, I, when I first looked at the title, I was going, am I pronouncing this correctly because there's a small X in the middle of Crossroads? So, uh, But it's about a decade-long relationship and the ups and downs of that relationship. Yes, yeah, and it, 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 it explores two people's love between the ages of 21 and 31 um and so in that sense it's at its center is a love story um it's also exploring other things though the notion of roads not taken i suppose when you get to a very advanced age like such as mine you look back on your life and you think of and you realize all the choices that you thought you were making and all the ones that you didn't know you were making and how you know a range of 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 shifting events have changed the direction of what is your narrative so i was interested in examining that in this show Uh, so rick and amy our two lovers at various points are faced with with moments where they might go in one direction or another sometimes we play play those options um and the sense of there being a kind of parallel universe in which something may or may not have occurred um is, is fascinates me. Uh, it fascinates me as a subject for theatre, because theatre can actually make all of those options real. Um, but also, as it fascinates me for musical theatre, because I don't think it's been much explored, uh, at least not in the way that that, that we do. So um, yeah, it, it's it's that. They're also because they're in a modern relationship. Um, they spend a lot of time apart, so we actually physicalise text messages and a couple of e- and some emails in one scene, and the sense of how. Uh, superficially 
uh, valuable that is a, as a means of communication, but how misleading it can be. Um, so we, 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 we play some of the things that they did write and some of the things that they deleted. <laughs> and I find all of that fascinating too. So I, I'm, I can see why, because as you say, as a writer, as a storyteller, that notion of being able to explore the what-ifs yep. of life, <clears throat> yep. what, what would have happened if I'd sent this, this text message in a moment of, of anger, for example. Yes. Um, uh, so being able to explore that in narrative, but then also being able to explore that through song and the shifting moods and different kind of uh, emotional outcomes of an event can, can take place... Uh, through song and through different styles of song as well. Absolutely. Uh, that sense of the complexity of the moment. And it's not simply about, you know, the two people who are in the room in any given conversation. It's about the person who suddenly shows up and completely skews the situation. And they might be a, it might be a totally random arrival, you know, who, who really has no knowledge that they're influencing your story. But, but uh, yes, they, they, they shift gears in, in, in some significant way. So, I do, yeah, that, that, that is a constant... Um, fascination for me and and the music works wonderfully to explore different emotional colors as you say that might emerge from from taking one road rather than another um it also works to shift gear in a way i just just artistically in the moment um it, we you know we need we need to let our know our, our audience know if we're doing a time shift and music works really well for that Tell us a little bit about the music, both into, both the style of music that audiences can expect if they go and see Crossroads, but also uh, uh, is it pre-recorded? Is there a live band? There's a live band, although interestingly the audience won't see them um, because they're going to be sitting up in the dressing room. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm told by our sound expert that that's a perfectly feasible thing, so I'm, uh, I always trust technicians. But, um, yes, there will be a live band of five Uh Beautiful keyboard. The, 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 uh, we're playing the, the Chapel of Chapel Grand um, as part of the band. But Anthony's music is very eclectic. I, I, I think Anthony, as a writer, he's one of the most gifted people uh, in, in his particular t- area of talent that I've ever met because he's the kind of guy who could write you a song that you would want to take away and sing um, about um, the monkey that broke into Triple R. Uh, give, him, give him 25 minutes and he'll, he'll write you that song and it'll be a hit. So that's the, Anthony's got that sort of skill and it moves, I suppose, his primary... He's, he's a beautiful writer of big ballads, but he's also a quirky, funny writer. So the show blends those sorts of modes. Um, and the challenge for him and for me really is as we develop the piece... To interleave the interleave interleave the um, the dialogue and music so that it functions um, as, as part of a totality. I thought a lot of a lot of musicals and, and our musical too. When we began writing this one, sort of moved from big song to big scene to big song, and and increasingly they need, they need to be integrated. Yeah, increasingly they've become intricately connected. So yeah. uh, which makes it, of course, a much more complex score to perform and a much more complex script. To, to act and hopefully a much more rewarding experience for for the audience as well i um recently saw the musical ghost um, mm. uh, which i think uh its season has now finished but it was 
an odd experience to watch it because the songs and the story weren't integrated. There was a, a real sense that, for me, when I watch a musical, a good musical, a song is going to advance the story yep. in some way. It's going yep. to reveal something about the inner life of a character. This, it, it felt like the, the songs had just been inserted into an existing storyline mm-hmm. because obviously mm-hmm. Ghost existed as a film. Yes. Um, and so it, it felt unbalanced as a musical, um, which is clearly an issue that you're not going to have with Crossroad because the um, the they are um, from the beginning you have been writing story and songs together for Crossroads rather than inserting songs into a story. Yeah, look, great things happen when Anthony and I are in the same room. Uh, we don't, we're not always, and you know, we a lot of stuff happens by email and late night emails saying, just had this idea, how about? So we, there's been a lot of that sort of communication as well. But it, this, this has been a sustained collaboration and it's actually, as I say, my collaborator on, on, on Flower Children was dead, um, my musical collaborator, and on, on Life's a Circus we worked somewhat differently. Anthony had an almost written through musical show with, to which I added a book with his developing his characters. So this, is, this has been, my, I suppose, my first real experience of prolonged regular collaboration creative collaboration it's been very it's been terrific actually it's a very exciting ride the musical is called Crossroads. It's a brand new Australian musical on at Chapel Off Chapel in Paran from the 15th to the 30th of April, previewing on the 15th of April. You can book at chapeloffchapel.com.au or by calling 82907000. Now, Peter, before I let you go, musicals come and go in fashion, but they endure. What is it about musical theatre as an art form that for you, makes it so fascinating and such an enduring form? Well, I love writing in all of its forms, but I I find the two things about musical theatre that I really appreciate and that make it such an exciting form to work in, I think are, first of all, obviously the fact that music is another language. It's it's a parallel language which can explore emotions that, that people in a conventional conversation are not, are not going to get to. So there's that interplay between the emotional reach of the music and what is characteristically the kind of heavily subtextual dialogue or, or funny dialogue, which is what I, I do a lot, um, where people are actually just using humour to disguise the depth of their feelings. Um, so there's that. Uh, I, love, I, I, love, I love music. But I also love about the form the fact that it is intrinsically collaborative not just with my writing partner in this case but with a terrific director with a bunch of outstanding performers uh, who are just doing this I mean they're getting paid peanuts but they're doing it for love um, it's costing them money uh, to, to do this sort of show but I think a lot of performers are like that they really want to get their teeth into something new and have a sense that they they brought it to its first um, flowering and I like that sense that, that it is going back to the battleship metaphor, it's really an army metaphor. It's just that though we've got troops on all sides and they kind of converge on the same battleground uh, with a common purpose, uh, but for coming from very different directions. Uh, it's, 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 it, that makes it a wild ride, but it, when, it, when it works, there's nothing like it for me. People come from all different directions. They meet at a crossroads. Uh, a new Australian musical, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick is the writer thereof. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. As I said, the uh, the show is on from the 15th to the 30th of April at Chapel Off Chapel. More info 
at chapeloffchapel.com.au. Peter, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure, Richard. Thank you for having me. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.